In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Please be seated. It was in June of this year that my cousin Miriam and her family came to visit, and we had a wonderful week uh, celebrating and just enjoying each other's company. And one uh, afternoon we decided that it would be best to order in pizza so that we could uh, uh, just... um, you know, enjoy uh, the afternoon. And so it was my job to order the pizza. I went online and uh, entered all the information and <clears throat> watched the, the website as it showed that the pizzas were being made. And then it said, you know, the pizzas are being uh, quality control checked. And then it says they're being, you know, put in the boxes and getting ready for delivery. And then it says they're being delivered, you know, and expect it in like five minutes. The pizza places just around the corner. So five minutes goes by, ten minutes, half an hour goes by, no pizza. When the delivery man finally comes, I'm irritated because they're so much later than what they said they were going to be. And I open the door and the delivery guy is irritated at me. And I thought, that's strange, until he says, you gave me the wrong address. There is no 1663. And I thought, well, that's strange doesn't seem like I gave you the right address. I think that is my address. But I paid and got the pizza. And, and then my family's asking, well, what did he say? What, what was the address? And so I told them and they said, that's not our address. <laughs> I had you know, moved seven months ago and I memorized our address, but apparently I memorized it wrong. Uh, the pizza place was not the only ones I'd given this wrong address to. Apparently my health insurance has been going to the wrong place. Uh, my pension program has been mailing my stuff to the wrong place. Uh, my family has been having a wonderful time uh, laughing at me uh, as I've been trying to correct these uh, mistakes. I had not been careful. I wasn't careful when I memorized my address. And this is the phrase that Moses uses here in Deuteronomy for how we're supposed to respond to the commandment of God. We're supposed to be careful in the commandments, which isn't always a word that we think of when we think of the commandments and the way that we're supposed to keep them and live them. We don't often think about being careful and what that means, observing detail and and having a certain fear of getting it wrong, you know. And this is what the Lord is talking about here in the book of Deuteronomy. You remember that Deuteronomy means the second telling, it's the second word. It's the second time that the Lord goes through the law because the Lord's a good teacher and good teachers know you tell them once and then you tell them, what did I just tell you? And then I'm going to tell you again. And so this is the Lord again telling the people of God uh, what it is that he's done and what his expectation is for their response to him. So you'll remember that he's telling them about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, about Jacob becoming Israel, and Israel having 12 sons, these 12 tribes of Israel that go down into Egypt, and they fall into slavery with Joseph, and the Lord waits 400 years, and then he brings them up uh, using Moses as his prophet, and he takes them into uh, the very borders of the promised land, and because of their disobedience to him, they have to wander for 40 years. Now this is the end of that 40 years of wandering, and they're just about to enter the promised land. In fact, they're standing on the eastern border of the river Jordan. And Moses has been allowed to look over into the promised land. And the nations are looking out into the promised land. And the Lord's saying, before you go in, 
One more time, I want to tell you what it is that you're supposed to do, how it is that you're supposed to live your life, and how it is that you got here in the first place. It's by my hand, he tells them, and he reminds them that you're not supposed to keep just some of the commandments or do some of the things that I tell you to do, but you're supposed to keep the whole of the commandment, and you're supposed to be careful in doing it. And then he makes a really wonderful promise to them. He tells them that he's going to test them and discipline them. Yay! Come on, where's the excitement? We get to be tested and disciplined. You know, I walk into people's houses and they've got embroideries and posters on the wall with Bible verses. Very rarely do I see Bible verses saying the Lord will test you and discipline you. This doesn't seem to be a popular one that people want to put up on the walls, right? We get to be tested and disciplined. We've talked about this. What does this mean? This means the Lord is seeing how obedient will you be. How obedient will you be under stress? And he says, I allow you to hunger to test you. I don't know about you, but I'm not at my best when I'm hungry. If I'm tired and hungry, I'm not likely to be the kind of virtuous, fun-loving person that you see before you today, right? I'm likely to be a little irritable, maybe a little angry, maybe a little short-tempered, maybe my patience isn't all there. And the Lord's saying, let's wait and see who you really are, what's underneath that thin skin of yours. Once you're hungry and you've been wandering for 40 years, how likely are you to be seeking the things of God? And so this is what he's doing. He's saying, I'm going to test you and I'm going to show you the condition of your heart so that you know that you need to turn to me in all things so that you can receive all of that virtue that I want you to have, all of that discipline and the following of the commandments so that you can walk in my ways. And finally, so that you can receive the bread of everlasting life, which he says is my word. So he's preparing them for Jesus. He's saying, Jesus is going to come. He is the word that you will live by. He is the word that you will feed on. You're not just going to eat toast anymore. You're going to receive the word of God. God himself will be the one who feeds you. And of course, Jesus now in John's gospel is fulfilling that commandment. He's fulfilling that promise that Moses makes in Deuteronomy. In fact, he goes out into the wilderness. He goes out and lets them get hungry on the side of the seashore. He lets them turn to God and say, where will we eat? He feeds them, feeds the 5,000, and then he waits for them to get hungry again, and they come again, and he says, now what is it you're looking for? What kind of bread are you looking for? If you're eating the kind of bread, or you're looking for the kind of bread that you had yesterday, you're just going to be hungry again. But you want to look for the bread of everlasting life, the bread that will fill you always. And he says, I am that bread. Which is a radical thing to say the christian church has never really gotten past that statement i am the bread of life this is a statement that we have to talk about that we have to remind each other about that we have to focus on that we really should be spending some time contemplating in our prayer life what does that mean that jesus is the bread of life the ancient church said it's a mystery The ancient father said, this is a mystery. We receive bread, and when we receive it, we receive Christ himself. We receive his flesh. And they left it pretty much at that. They said, it's a mystery. We know that it's true because we know that in Holy Communion we receive everlasting life. By the time we got to the high Middle Ages, that kind of mystery wasn't enough. And many of the philosophers, like St. Thomas Aquinas, whom I love dearly, turned to Aristotle and to the philosophers of Greek philosophy and tried to explain Holy Communion using Greek philosophy. And of course he comes up 
with the concept of transubstantiation that the Roman Catholic Church has used to try to explain this mystery. It's beautiful philosophy. It's beautiful theology. And I love St. Thomas. But he goes a long ways to describe something that the early church simply said, it's a mystery. In the Reformation, we went all the way to the other side, didn't we? Many of those in the Reformation said, not only is it a mystery, but it's probably not as big a deal as you thought. It's probably just a symbol. It's probably just a sign. It's really not a big deal. There's no power in it. It's just a remembrance. Jesus didn't say it right. He didn't really mean to say, I am the bread of life. He didn't really mean to say, this is my flesh. He meant to say, it symbolizes my flesh, or it's a metaphor for my flesh. So you can see how we went from one side to this strict philosophy to the other side of denying the power of the Eucharist at all. While the Anglican Church, much like the Orthodox, have gone back to the early church and said, this truly is the body of Christ, this truly is bread, and how can that be? It's a mystery. As soon as you explain to me how a man and a woman can become one flesh in marriage, I can explain to you the mystery of the body and blood of Christ. As soon as you explain to me how somebody can be born again in water, and they can be a new creation in God, I'll explain to you how the body and blood are the, the bread and the wine. It's a mystery. But what we do know in this radical statement that Jesus gives, that he's done with giving us a portion of his spirit the way he does to Moses. He's done with giving us a little bit of lunch to hold us over. He's saying, I want you to have the fullness of me. He's not giving us salvation that we put in our back pocket. This isn't a ticket to heaven. He wants to give us his flesh and his body. He wants to have oneness with us. He wants to dwell with us. He wants to tabernacle with us. And to do that, he gives up his own flesh. And the purpose of this, again, isn't for us to get a ticket into heaven. It's for us to be resurrected. It's for us to be resurrected. The point is for us to receive resurrected bodies the way that Jesus did. And he says it over and over again about this resurrection promise. He says it three times in John's Gospel. Did you hear it all three times? In verse uh, verse 39 he says, And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. His purpose is to raise us up on the last day. He says it again in verse 40. For this is the will of my Father, that whoever believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. He says it again in verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. He says it three times in as many verses, right? Over and over again, the purpose of my flesh coming and of you consuming my flesh and drinking my blood is so that you too can have a resurrected body, can have this new body that you will be raised up on the last day. How do these resurrected bodies work, right? It's a mystery. How is it that they can eat and still walk through walls? How does Jesus' body appear to some and not to others? It's a mystery. It's the same mystery of the newness of life in baptism, the same mystery of marriage, the same mystery of the body and blood of Christ. But we become new beings, new flesh, that he is preparing for this resurrection day. He is preparing us for this day of resurrection. And to do that, he gives us himself, his own body. He says, I am the living bread. I am the living bread, and the bread that I give for the life of the world is my flesh. It can't be any more straightforward than that. I have given you my flesh that you may have everlasting life. And St. Paul, in his letter to the Corinthians, while sitting in prison, by the way, 
while in chains is glorying in the freedom of Christ. He's glorying in the freedom of this new uh, preparation for resurrection. And he's saying, by the way, if you thought that having a resurrection body meant just a free pass and nothing more to worry about, nothing more to do, you're confused. He says you've been confused if you think that salvation is just something that you can just rely upon and that there's no more plan for you. He says you're not supposed to be ending up like the Gentiles who just go after their stomachs, right? Who are darkened and alienated in ignorance and hardness of heart, callous and given up to sensuality, greed and every practice of impurity. I give to you every commercial that I've seen in the last uh, couple 24 hours watching the Olympics to show you the impurity that these talking about we're right in the middle of that right and if we think that we're just supposed to be given over to lives of sensuality we're not reading the scriptures we're supposed to be disciplined in the life of christ taking on the life of christ living in him taking on his mind we're supposed to be taught by him we're supposed to learn him he is the truth right we're supposed to be putting on new selves growing up in the likeness in his holiness and then he tells us what are we supposed to be learning and what does he go over the ten commandments he goes right back to the law of god that we're supposed to be careful in and what does he start with tell the truth he says speak the truth Right? Don't take stuff that doesn't belong to you. He tells the thief, if you've been a thief, you're supposed to go to work and you're supposed to earn by the work of your hands in order to what? To take care of yourself? No, he says so that you can be generous in giving to other people. So he's again going back to the commandments of God and he's saying, what are you supposed to do? You're supposed to tell the truth. You're supposed to work in honest labor in order to be generous. You're supposed to recognize your anger, right? And not act upon it, but turn to God with all grace, with all patience, right? He says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander. Let me say that again. All bitterness, all wrath, all anger, clamoring, slandering, be put away from you with malice. And he says, be kind to one another. Be tender-hearted to one another. Forgive one another the way that Christ forgave you. I put to you that you can't do it. You can't do any of this. Who can do that? Who can do all these things? I can't. But God can. The Holy Spirit can. And His promise is that if we will only believe and respond to Him, then He will place into our hearts the love that God has for us. Our response for one another, my response in love to you, is first the response of God's love for me. God loves me, and when I receive that love, I know that I have to love you. The way that He has forgiven me, I know that I have to forgive you. And so when we receive in the power of the Holy Spirit, when we turn to the Lord in prayer, when we just wait a minute and give the Lord the opportunity to change our hearts and our minds, we will be given the love that He has had for us, so that we too may lay down our lives as He laid them down for us this is the promise of God so I've had to spend the last couple of weeks calling up various insurance companies and other companies and uh, telling them that I gave them the wrong address 
And many times uh, they want to fight with me and uh, try to lay blame. Well, did you make the mistake or did we make the mistake? And I have to, in all humility, say, I don't need blame. I apologize. It was my fault. I just need to make this change. And so I've had to humble myself and in quiet obedience and in gentleness saying, it was my mistake and I just need to make the change. All the while, my family laughs at me. Which is good for me, right? It's good for me. It's good for people to laugh at us, to remember how small we are and how broken we are, right? So that the Lord can humble us, so that we can turn to Him and say, I can't do it. I'm going to make mistakes. I need your love and your tender mercy so that I can share it with those around me. May we receive the tender mercies of God and his love so that we may in turn share his love with the world.